Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. We are going to finish the book of 2 Samuel this evening. Next week, we're going to begin the book of Habakkuk. So if you want to start studying uh, the book of Habakkuk, we're going to do five weeks in the book of Habakkuk. It's three chapters long. It's when faith meets hard questions. I think there's oftentimes in our lives where we are challenged with hard questions, so we will do a study in the book of Habakkuk. Tonight's study is entitled, To Count or to Not Count? That's the question that is before King David. It's at the end of his life, the end of his reign, and he is tempted to count just the soldiers of Israel. What is behind this temptation? To trust in his own military strength instead of in the Lord's power and in the Lord's might. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Why is God angry? We don't know. God doesn't tell us. We know God's character, that God is righteous, that he's slow to anger, that he's not sinful, that he's not human, that he doesn't just blow his top, that it is a righteous anger. It's his, his judgment. There's something happening in the nation of Israel that's causing him to be angry. He moves to cause then David to go and number the children of Israel. On first reading of this verse, you may come away with the conclusion that God tempts us to do evil. We have to look at this verse through the lens of Scripture. James chapter 1 tells us this. It says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So God's not evil. He doesn't tempt people with evil. So when we're tempted, the reason is because I'm evil, because I have a sinful tendency, a sinful flesh, sin struggle. So God doesn't tempt us to do evil. Now, there's another player in this verse. How do we know? Because we go to the parallel section of Scripture. You may want to write this down. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's very important in this discussion. 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So three things are at play in this verse. We've got God's judgment. We've got Satan's temptation, and we have David's decision to compromise. Now, how do all three of those work together? If you can answer that question, you are the smartest theologian that has ever lived in all time. (laughs) It seems like there's a great tension here, doesn't there? That we go, okay, God is wanting to accomplish judgment upon Israel. That is clear. He states that. He he does have, have a mission here. Satan is the one who's doing the tempting. We know that from 1 Corinthians 21. David's held responsible for his sinful choice. One of the things that causes this to be a little bit more clear is the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Satan's able to come to the throne room of God and says, Have you considered your servant Job? He's a righteous man. I bet you, God, if you're a betting man, that if you take away all of his prosperity, he will curse you. God's response to Satan was, yes, 
you can bring trial into his life, but here's the limit. And he set the boundaries. And Satan goes down and kills all of his children, wipes out his livestock, affects his health. So we find something here that's really important is that, that Satan cannot come and do work into our lives without it first passing through the hand of the Father. Now that can cause you a lot of difficulty or consternation in your view of God, but I would much rather God be in control than Satan. I mean, Job chapter 1 could read like Satan's just doing whatever he wants and he's more powerful than God. And God's like, well, I guess I got to let him do it. But it shows that, that God is more powerful than Satan and Satan has to get permission from God. The end of the book of Job, Job is obviously distraught. God listens to his distress, listens to the false commentary of his friends, and finally God speaks, and he basically says, Job, where were you? Where were you when I made the stars? Where were you when I created the galaxies? Do you know how deep the ocean is? And God's message is clear. I'm God, and are you okay with that? And that's another one of these verses that we find here in verse 1. God is angry. He's bringing about judgment. Satan is tempting. David compromises by numbering the people. Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I may know the number of the people. That's the instruction that David gives. Whenever you see Dan to Beersheba, it's from the northern part of Israel to the very southern part of Israel. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king desire this thing? Paraphrase, Joab, this is not a good idea. If God wants to multiply your army, he can do it. Job says, I'd love for you to be able to see that. But don't go out and number the people. I think Joab saw David's heart, saw the way that David was approaching this. He wants to count his resources, to know exactly how many soldiers he has, to put his trust in those soldiers instead of in the Lord. How different this chapter would read if David would have heeded the warning of Joab. Most of the time in our lives, God will give us warning through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through an earthly messenger, a brother or sister in Christ, many times someone who's very close to us. Most times we happen to be married to them, <laughs> married to the messenger. Our spouse is saying, are you sure you want to do this? Does this seem like a a godly decision to you, a close, a close friend, a Joab, to be able to stop and listen in those moments will save us from great pain. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab, against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. David has the authority. If you are in a position of authority, be careful to be a good listener. It's all too easy to go, I've got this figured out. I'm the boss here. I'm in charge here. Why would anybody question my decision? David goes forward. And they crossed over. This is Joab and those doing the census. Over the Jordan and camped in Aror. This is 14 miles east of the, the Dead Sea. 
on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad, towards Jasser. Then they came to Gilead in the land of Taltim, Hoshi. They came to Dan Jan and around to Sidon. This is north of the Sea of Galilee. So they go, if you're thinking of Jerusalem, if you're thinking of a map of Israel, and east of the Dead Sea, and then up north, north of the Sea of Galilee. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all of the city of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out south of Judah as far as Beersheba, and they make their way all the way down to southern Israel, which is close to the Red Sea, which borders Egypt. So when they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. It's a long time. Census takes a long time. To count all the people, all the soldiers, it takes a long time. Nine months and 20 days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. The ten northern tribes considered Israel. 800,000 valiant men of the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So altogether, 1.3 million. That's a really large army for such a small country. Israel's military strength was strongest during David's reign. In that Old Testament period, it was strongest under his leadership. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures, what do you know about this census and the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles? The numbers don't match up. We look in 1 Chronicles, and the numbers that are listed is 1.1 million from Israel and 470,000 from Judah. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 21. So some of the critics of the Bible say, well, God's word is contradictory to itself because of this one instance. Because Joab went out to count the people, and there's two different numbers that are reported. But if we look a little bit closer, in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 6, it says, But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was an abomination to Joab. So he left out two tribes, and then it says he didn't care about the census because he didn't agree with the whole concept of counting the soldiers. How accurate do you think the census was if the person in charge of putting it together thought it was an abomination? Probably not going to be too accurate. Plus two tribes are, are left out. The census was so lacking in quality, First Chronicles 27 verse 24 says this, Joab the son of Zariah began a census, but he didn't finish. Didn't even finish. For wrath came upon Israel because of the census nor was the number reconciled in the account of the Chronicles of King David. So also, Scripture records for us, he didn't get to finish because God poured out his wrath. God didn't like the idea of the census, and it was never put into the official records. I suggest to you the numbers don't match up for a reason. God is letting us know in his word the census was a bad idea. I'm not in this, and because I'm not in this, account is not going to line up, but it's not a mistake. It's not contradictory. God is communicating a message about the census. Does that make sense? Or is it senseless? I was working on that all week long. (laughs) 
before we continue with the text, let's consider this in our own lives. Is there a temptation for us to count our own resources instead of counting on God? Do you feel a little bit more confident about your security if your bank account is at a certain level? Now, is it wrong to have a savings account? Is it wrong to be a good steward? Is it wrong to know how much is in your bank account? No. But is it wrong to trust in the bank account instead of trusting in the living God? Yes, absolutely. We know that money very easily grows wings and flies away. Hopefully, you're trusting in the Lord and not in your bank account. But it's a real struggle for all of us, and a good way to examine it is if this dollar amount is in the savings account, I sleep a little bit better. If this dollar amount is in the bank account, I don't sleep at all. That indicates something. I'm counting my resources instead of counting on the Lord. Do we tend to look at our education and look at our degrees and look at our abilities to have security for the future? Now, is there anything wrong with education? Are we a steward of the abilities that God has given us? Absolutely. But it is wrong to trust in our degrees instead of trusting in a living God. Amen? But it's very easy for us to make the same mistake as David and say, I'm going to start counting. It's easy for churches to count dimes and rear ends and seats in a sanctuary and think it's a healthy church. What do I mean by that? Count money, how much tithes and offerings come in, how many people are sitting in the sanctuary, and then that's the mark of a healthy church. If there's more money coming in and more people that are sitting in seats, then it must be a healthy church. Very easily, a church could move away from God's mission and they're counting physical resources instead of counting on the Lord. It's just a slight move over here from stewardship to start looking at a church that way instead of the way that God would desire. There's probably some aspect where we make this same mistake that David makes. Psalms 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, degrees, bank accounts, abilities, and some trust in horses, but we remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalms 44 verse 6 and 7 says, For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. These are the words of David. But you have saved me from our enemies and have put to shame those who have hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. In fact, God says that his strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you know what our greatest resource is? It's actually our inability. It's actually our weakness. It's actually the fact that we can't figure things out. And in the midst of that, God shows himself strong. God receives the glory. People are able to look on and go, it's not because those people are so great. It's because God is so great. Amen? We in agreement on that? In verse 10, and David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. 
I love this about David. He maintained a soft heart before God. In God's view, in God's perspective, in God's economy, this is a big deal to him. God is going to kill 70,000 people because of David's choice in this chapter. It's a big deal. Words can't describe it. But David, in the midst of this, is able to keep a soft heart before God, listen to his heart, to listen to his heart condemning him, to listen to his conscience, to that conviction, and cry out to the Lord in confession and repentance. What happens to our heart over a period of time if we're not careful? If we don't keep short accounts with God, it gets really hard. Our conscience gets seared with a hot iron, and we no longer are convicted by sin. Our heart no longer has the capacity to alarm us that we have done something wrong. And David sinned greatly through his life, but he continued to go back to the Lord in repentance, and God would refresh his heart. God would restore his heart to where when he made another sin, he was in that place where his heart condemned him. Tonight, if your heart condemns you in some area, if it convicts you in some area, go to the Lord like David did so you can receive forgiveness because then God moves us from a place of condemnation to a place of forgiveness. Romans 8.1 tells us, for there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there's a reason that our heart is pricking us. There's a reason that our conscience is saying, hey, slow down, things aren't right. The Holy Spirit's getting a message across to us, and it's important to respond so we can enter in to the forgiveness of the Lord. Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of God came to the prophet Gad, David's seer or David's prophet, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. Tough spot for Gad to be in. For him to give David the correction. And God is saying, look, David, I'm going to allow you to choose the consequence. You get to pick from three consequences. That's interesting in and of itself. Sounds a lot like a dad, doesn't it? Like a father. You know what, kiddo? I love you. You blew it because I love you. I've got to give you some consequences. And to help you think through this, I'm going to give you three different consequences for you to choose from. So here's David's choices. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land, or shall you flee three months before your enemies? Will they pursue you? Or shall there be three days or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. So think about it before you give the answer. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of a man. Good choice. The enemies of Israel come in, there's going to be no mercy, but who knows? God may be merciful to us. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, 75,000 men of the people died. Remember how the chapter started. God's anger was turned towards Israel. We don't know why. God was wanting to correct his people. God was choosing to discipline his son, David. 
God in his love brings discipline to us. We can say safely from verse 15 that not just David is affected by his compromise. Wouldn't it be nice if our sin and our compromise only affected us? A lot of times we think that, that our sin is some type of private world. But it's, it's not. We may sin in private, but God's going to expose it. He's going to make it known. And then that sin is going to affect so many people. We think about the police officers being shot in Dallas. So many people are affected by the choice of, of that shooter. You know, his, his, his sin, his re- rebellion, his violence, it, it affects so many people, right? Not just the one that pulled the trigger is, is, is affected. Today I had the opportunity with, with some friends. We did a, a man trip out to the Arkansas River and did some rafting. Dan Johnson went, and we were in a Friday morning uh, men's accountability group. And the guide really scared us before we got on the boat. We signed up for a section called the Numbers, and, and the rapids are, are pretty aggressive. There's a three-mile stretch where you're in rapids. So, so you're going to be rowing for about an hour, and they're, they're telling this. But then they're telling us about people that died on the river, and this person that died last week in the Arkansas uh, a river. And, but the reason that they were stressing the safety so much was to get us to listen to our guide. And he said, you know, you really need to pay attention to my voice. So if you hear me distressed and yelling at you, two paddles to the left, you better paddle really hard, two paddles to the left. And with the water being down, it was safer than June when there's mass runoff, but it means there was more rocks. And he's like, we don't, we don't want to hit these rocks, these big massive rocks in the Arkansas at, at the, the wrong angle. That's going to flip us over, and you guys don't, don't want to want to flip over and sure enough, we get in that boat, and your ear is tuned in to the guide, you know? And I've been known to be a space cadet. It's probably happened to you sometimes when you've talked to me in the foyer or the hallway, and I have not even heard you, and it appeared like I didn't even see you. It's because I'm, I'm having a deep thought, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, it's true, I'm a complete space cadet. Sometimes I'm writing next week's sermon already out there, but more often, I'm probably thinking about Chipotle or something like that, you know. And I know it's a surprise to a lot of you ladies, but I can only have one thought at a time, if I'm lucky, you know. But by being out there and having this stress on safety and the risk that was there, the space cadet Cartier was gone, and I was listening to, to the guide. I was honed in on what he was saying. And spiritually tonight... I would pray that God would use his word to speak to you that there is great risk in sin. There is great risk in compromise. Does God forgive? Absolutely. Was David forgiven for taking this census? Absolutely. We're going to see God meet David in his mercy. Did 70,000 people die because David counted the soldiers? Yes. Does compromise bring death? Yes. Does sin bring death? Yes. So listen to the guide. Listen to Jesus. Be attentive to him. And when you hear Jesus say, man, paddle two to the right, paddle two to the right. And then walk where the Lord would have us to walk. In verse 16, and when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the angel of the Lord's the one bringing the plague. The Lord relented from the destruction 
and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arna, the Jebusite. The Jebusites were the people group that inhabited Jerusalem before David conquered it. It's thought to be that this threshing floor for the wheat was on Mount Moriah, which is where the temple would be built, just above David's palace. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. David's like, I know that I've blown it, but God's people are suffering because of my sin. David maintained a heart that was open to God's conviction. He also maintained a heart for God's people. He's broken for the suffering that he's seen amongst God's people. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arna the Jebusite. I think this is a very important verse. I don't want us to miss this is even in the midst of this sin and this great consequence, can you imagine being David and being in the midst of this kind of death and carnage that was a result of your own sin? You'd think there's no way out. God's done with me. He'll never speak to me. He doesn't have a way forward. But God does. And he speaks to David through the prophet and says, okay, this is what I want you to do. And you might be here tonight and saying, there's no way forward for me. I've compromised too greatly. I stopped listening to the guide a long time ago. I try to listen to the guide and I still mess things up. I do the things I I don't want to do. God's done with me. Where do you find that in scripture? You don't. You find things like a promise from God that there's always a way of escape. A promise from God that there's a future and a hope. And if you turn to the Lord in confession and repentance, God's going to give you instruction to move forward. And one of the things that I'm noticing more and more, thankfully, by God's goodness, is people are coming to Christ in a broken state. Praise God. And you're, you're here and you're saying, man, could God forgive me? Could he touch my life? Could he change my life? Absolutely. Is there a way forward for our nation? Absolutely. Do you think God's sitting in heaven saying, I don't have a solution for this. I don't know what to do. If we turn to him in repentance, if we turn to him in prayer, If we're ready to follow his instructions, he's ready to meet us in his mercy. Is it easy? Do the consequences go away? No, but there's always a way forward in Christ. In verse 19, so David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded him. It's never too late to start walking in obedience. David's like, okay, God's telling me to go up to the threshing floor. I'm going to go up according to the word of the Lord. Walk in obedience. Do that simple thing that God's called you to do. Now Arnar looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arnar went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Arnar said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arnar said to David, let my lord the king take... And offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing elements, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All these, O king, Arnon has given to this king. And Arnon said to the king, May the Lord God accept you. So Arnon's like, You can have whatever you want. 
to offer to the Lord. I'm willing to just freely give it to you. I pray that then God would pour out his mercy. King David responds in verse 24, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor I will offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David could have had the oxen for free. But he says, I'm not going to offer to God something that costs me nothing. And he understood something really important about worship. And that is that it's going to cost us something. In order for it to be worship, there's going to be cost involved. You think about it this way, you know, a, a, a card that is bought at the store by your children, your young children, is great. Any card from your kids is fabulous. But the ones that they make by hand, unsolicited by anybody, when they just go, man, I want to make mom or dad a card. Sometimes it's not Mother's Day. It's not Father's Day. It's not your birthday. It's just, I appreciate you, dad. I appreciate you, mom. I'm going to draw you this picture. Or it is your birthday. And they sit down and they make a card. And they write the three little words that they know. Or they're not even old enough yet to, to be able to spell. And you get that and you receive that go, wow, this, this cost something, you know, they put, they put work into this. They put themselves into this. And it's the same with the Lord. He's, when we are touched by the Lord and we're in love with the Lord, our worship is going to involve sacrifice. So here's a hard question. Do we give God our leftovers? Do we give him the leftovers of our time, the leftovers of our talent, the leftover of our financial resources? God, I want to give you your kingdom and I'll give to you what is ever left over. God, I want to spend time with you in prayer and in your word. I'll give you what, whatever's left over. We want to give the first fruits unto the Lord. And even in the midst of all of this pain and all of this chaos, David's able to understand and say, look, I won't skimp. I won't skimp on this and I'm not going to offer to God something that doesn't cost me something. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. This draws me to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why does God stop this plague? The sacrifice is made and he responds in mercy based on the sacrifice. Why are we not the object of God's judgment? because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you trust Jesus Christ for salvation. That's why God can pour out his mercy and his grace upon us. The biblical term is propitiation. Not a word I like to say very often. It's hard to pronounce. But what does it mean? To appease the wrath of. To appease the wrath of. So because of our sin... We deserve God's punishment, but because of the sacrifice of Christ, when we trust Christ for salvation, then God's wrath is appeased. Now, if you've never trusted Christ for salvation, in just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to as the service ends. And right now, because of your sin, you are at odds with God. In fact, you're at war with God. You're on the opposite side of God. And you're the object of his judgment, just like we all were before we see Christ as our Savior. Christ died for you, and he rose again, that all who repent and believe will be saved. Why do you need to repent and believe? Because the biblical truth is if you don't, you go to hell. That's what the Bible talks about. 
That's what the Bible shares. We don't come to Jesus to make our life better. We don't come to Jesus so we'll make more money. We don't come to Jesus because he promises us to bring us cheesecake every night and gourmet coffee every morning. That's not the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel is far greater than that. You're a sinner who deserves punishment, but if you trust Christ for salvation and you receive that free gift, you receive grace instead, you receive eternal life instead, Christ comes and lives inside of your heart and gives you complete freedom. And as we go to sing, come find someone on the ministry team here in the front. Come walk this aisle. Ask someone to come with you. If you came with someone who knows Christ as their Savior and say, I want to receive Christ and tell them to come right up to us, a pastor, someone on the ministry team. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. So what are some applications for us quickly is don't rely on your own resources. This is in God's word for a reason. You know, count up the resources so you can be a good steward of them, but don't count the resources so that you can be confident in them. Does that make sense? I'm not trusting in the resource. I'm not trusting in the bank account. I'm not trusting in the degree or my ability. I'm trusting in the Lord. Compromise leaves a plague of destruction. That's something we should walk away from this passage. David's compromise left a plague of destruction. Respond to conviction from the heart. And then God in his mercy and grace forgives us at the cross. We come to the cross and thankfully we receive his mercy and his grace.